Hello and welcome to the new China Research Group weekly podcast. I'm Julia Pamely. And I'm Chris Cash. Every week we will be bringing you insight from experts and fresh analysis on the stories driving the UK's relationship with China and China's relationship with the world. For our latest instalment of the China Research Group China Talks podcast, we are delighted to be joined by Martin Thorley. Martin is a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Exeter and has become a leading voice in the UK on international engagement with China. He is particularly interested in elite relations and during his PhD thesis into Sino-British relations, his research uncovered Chinese party state activity in the UK and evidence of compromised actors within the British establishment. Prior to his postgraduate academic career, Martin spent several years in China, first working for the British Council before establishing a recruitment group, assisting Chinese and China-based groups to recruit foreign experts. In this role, Martin had regular interactions with a range of Chinese officials and industry leaders. Martin is, of course, the author of the now famous Twitter explainer thread in the wake of the Christine Lee foreign interference saga. Martin, thank you uh, very much for joining us, and I imagine you've been in high demand over the past few weeks. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Yes, it has been a very busy time indeed, and um, it's good to see people engaging with more uh, China-related issues in the UK. And just to kick us off, I'm curious about your experiences in China and having spent several years there and and how they sort of shaped your understanding um, of China and and fueled your your current research interests. Hmm. Um, Yeah, Okay. so you just mentioned that my my, a lot of my framing is on elite relations. And I think that comes very much from my time in China. Um, I lived out in China for quite a few years and um, I suppose lived many different lives. I was based in, in Tianjin and attended Tianjin University. I operated a business in, in Beijing later. I always planned to return to academia. So in some ways, I uh, viewed it in a, an anthropological way, if you like, being there and mixing with these groups. Um, perhaps that's that's one reason why you have this focus on elite relations now. Um, because of the aforementioned business in Beijing, I was increasingly placed at this interface where Chinese and international elites come into contact. Now, I did my undergraduate degree in history and found that many on the international side of this relationship were either representing commercial entities or had a business studies background. At the same time, I had increasing exposure to Chinese officials and cadres and the like. And given the party state landscape, the party's interests were typically paramount by default on that side of the equation. You can do whatever you want, so long as it accords with the party's aims. That mixture of international and domestic was fascinating to me. Um, And in no small way, pretty dispiriting. I think there were many Westerners engaged there who perhaps could have known or should have known better and framed everything very much through uh, shareholder value, uh, not far beyond margins, margins, margins. Uh, But let me add as well, actually, even for all that, I think my relationship with China is complex. I, I feel I developed a good understanding of political power and its use on the ground in China. But at the same time, it was many years. And uh, with those years, there were very good friends and appreciation of many facets of uh, Chinese culture. Yeah, b- brilliant. And I feel we're still very much um, operating at that apex of understanding the domestic side and the international engagement. 
um, and perhaps a, a more nuanced understanding of that relationship is um, is very much required on, on this end. Um, and to jump straight in, I guess, to, to that thread that has, has now become, has gone viral and, and become kind of famous definitely amongst the, the China watching community and also the British political establishment. And in that thread, you, you detailed some of the, the work of the United Front um, and the United Front Work Department, which um, will have been well known, I guess, amongst the China watching community, um, but perhaps has now become more of a household name. Could you provide a, a quick overview for listeners of what the United Front is and how the, the CCP approaches foreign influence uh, with, with the United Front being a, a key vehicle of that? Sure. Now, you know, if we're going into the United Front, we are delving into the black box a little here. Um, I, so I would say that uh, there are others more qualified to speak about the United Front itself. I'll speak briefly to say that this is an organization by which the party engages non-party non elements, uh, essentially to protect party interests. So I would frame it that way, not, not country, but by party. This means the majority of its activity is domestic. You get, for example, the engagement of religious groups in China, uh, but it includes the international element. And within this is embodied uh, the party's troubling ideas about diaspora groups. So you see um, United Front training material, uh, for example, that states the unity of the Chinese at home requires the unity of sons and daughters of Chinese abroad. Um, this is the, the political engagement, but obviously from this particular angle. Um, and one must also make a distinction between the United Front Work Department itself, the concrete department, and United Front Work, which is activity that is expected of those beyond the organization itself. Until very recently, uh, there was, I think there was widespread ignorance about the United Front in the UK and probably most other places as well, outside of this small group of specialists, as you suggest in, in your question. That's changing, which is positive. Um, whilst a lot of countries engage in activity of this nature, we see with the United Front, I think that the focus on the party rather than country, the authoritarian elements in this case from China, and the sheer size of China, uh, for example, in uh, an economic sense, make the activity probably a greater challenge than a disruptive but smaller state engaging in this way. There's lots to unpack from, from that, and the diaspora community is something that I, I want to get onto kind of later in the, the discussion. Mm -hmm. How do you see the, the United Front or United Front Work Department fit into the, the, the Chinese Communist Party? What wider propaganda strategy and its its quest to, to sort of shape opinion of, of China out with its borders. So you, you know the idea of, of telling China's story well, I guess. Um, again, I'm, it's when you you know you were going right back into. I feel as if we're going right back into the uh, toward China into the black box at the centre, sort of Zhongnanhai and the uh, the decisions made at this the from the highest echelons of the party. It's, it's been a very important element of the party's engagement with non-party for a very long time. And I think what we're seeing is, you know, perhaps not a significant change in that in itself, just a change in China's footprint. And so by extension of that, we see the United Front's, uh, the United Front's footprint growing also. And I say it is, it is important to make that distinction. It's, uh, it's active at home, it's active abroad. And so it's, 
you know, there's the old um, statement about being one of the magic weapons. It is a very crucial element of uh, Chinese party state engagement, and it is party first. And focusing on the abroad aspect and um, the United Front Work Department itself, which individuals and groups abroad has it targeted? And how, how does it go about doing that? Can you maybe break that down? Obviously, you, you don't need to go into the, the sort of fine detail, but, but just give us a, a kind of overview of that would be great. Mm. So I think we see, um, I mentioned there in my previous answer, diaspora groups. And this is, the, I want to make an important point here, actually. You, you've given me an opportunity. I think ever talking, if we're ever talking about questions of this nature, we absolutely have to say, uh, first of all, that there's an increased risk to the British East Asian community, actually, in general. What I mean here is that the party reaches out and the party has its own ideas about these groups, and the United Front is one way it reaches out to these groups. There are actually, you know, groups in the UK which are very old, usually Cantonese-based uh, diaspora groups. Now, you know, some, they, some of these have, they outdate the party and they are doing their own thing. Perhaps they've been contacted by the party, perhaps inadvertently. You also have groups which are created by the United Front. So you talk sort of reunification, China, Taiwan reunification groups. So there's an important distinction there. At this point, I want to make at this stage uh, about the increased risk to British East Asian communities is because I think that though it's fair to say we require significantly better understanding of the pitfalls of engagement with authoritarian states like China, and there is, you know, this important, this need, the difference between economic considerations, security and sovereignty considerations. At the same time, there's got to be no compromise in attitude on defending the, this particular community, uh, and in specifically British Chinese community. The reason I say this is Australia had plenty of reasons to examine its own linkages to China and party state activity within its borders. Uh, it was, the United Front was involved centrally here. That's not in doubt, but at the same time, the exposure of such nefarious party state activity did correlate with a rise in anti-Asian hate crimes, frankly. Um, now, there's plenty of activity in the political commercial nexus of the UK that requires further scrutiny, but we've got to at least try and learn from these other examples. Uh, so Australia's example, then proceed with care. That begins with making this point and making it front and center so I've got responsibility, you've got responsibility, let's proceed in that spirit. I think that, so that diaspora element is important to note, but then what I've just said is also vitally important. I think we also see that with business. So effectively you, had, you have organizations, to give one, let's say hypothetical uh, element beyond the diaspora, you'll have organizations for, uh, for example, I've uncovered one instance where it's a think tank on financial matters. And that think tank in, based in China is trying to push forward um, Chinese party state objectives. This particular group reaches out, foreign experts, tries to uh, engage them, and you know, it would appear to change their opinion. Fair enough. Then if you look into the background of this particular financial uh, think tank, if you like, a think tank-like group in China, you can see from the individuals at the top of it, it, it the uh, leader positions, you see linkages into the, the United Front. And we start to see this as actually, yeah, okay, this is a, a party a foreign engagement or even foreign interference tool. So there are various elements of this nature. Diaspora is one. 
the one I've just mentioned there is financial. And you just see these various elements, these various uh, types of engagement, party-centric, to reach out. And in this case, as, as we say, uh, abroad, but not always abroad. I'm keen to sort of scrutinise the, the different elements that you've just touched upon. So to, to linger on the diaspora um, for, for just slightly longer, as you mentioned, it's a very delicate topic and, and politically sensitive topic that, for, for understandable reason, policymakers have not tended to, to want to wade into. But, but it's clear now that an increasingly um, assertive CCP under Xi Jinping deliberately conflates the idea of being Chinese or, or of Chinese descent with, with sort of loyalty to the, the party state, which is made synonymous with, with the nation. And I think you touched upon this in a recent article. How is the, the CCP able to influence this, this Chinese diaspora? And perhaps more importantly, how might liberal democracies such as the UK address these risks to Asian communities? And we obviously have to factor in non-mainland Chinese communities such as Hong Kongers and people from Taiwan into this discussion too. Um, yeah, you know, that is the question. That's an immensely difficult question, and yet one that is vital. Um, a natural response is to say uh, you need more British Chinese voices, and that is correct. But at the same time, I am aware some members of some members of the British Asian British Chinese community who have an outlook similar to my own, but feel that they might endanger, uh, you know, family members, sometimes quite distant family members, by speaking out. That is another problem without an easy solution, I'm afraid. Given this fact, perhaps some gov government consultation could be done discreetly. Likewise, I would say that a one-size-fits-all solution for liberal democracies isn't going to work. So in the UK, I've just mentioned these very long-established Cantonese communities. And then you have you know, community groups, some of which uh, will almost certainly have been approached or watched by the CCP, many, whether they know it or not. And that's very different than newer groups uh, established directly by the party state, which we sometimes see. Um, so making clear in discussions of this nature about the division between political issue and ethnicity on the liberal democratic side is going to be important because you're not really going to get that from the party state when it's pursuing its objectives. Framing is, is really important, hence my previous comment. I think the media have an important role, actually. It, keep reporting threats to British democracy by all means, but do so with care, particularly in terms of language used. Prominent individuals, uh, politicians are included there, and they, they also have an important role. This is perhaps one of the areas where uh, one could argue some individuals in Australia did not act in a way that was conducive to Asian, uh, Asian Australian community integration. So handling it with extreme care, and I know that's not in itself a a decent solution, um, but it is at least the right direction in which we've got to go in on this. Uh, considering there is, you know, there is this outreach, and if you just dipping into my own research, when you look at some of these groups, you see the engagement coming. You know, you have these organic groups in the UK, and then you'll have engagement from Chinese party state actors. And if you go backwards in China and Chinese language searches. Uh, again, you see links into United Front architecture and machinery. So this is the, the danger is there, the, the risk and the, uh, the danger to from the party state. And there is also a danger of uh, isolating and discriminating against pre predominantly the British Chinese community. Uh, that is the challenge. And I mean, these are just some of the ways we can at least mitigate that. Um, but it, I'm 
you know, I, I'm under no illusions that it's very difficult. I would say we all have that responsibility. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Be, being very careful and considerate around the language used and, and deliberate is is crucial. Um, the, what I would add to that is that the, the nature of the debate in the UK has become so polarised that it, it feels um, we're almost fighting against the tide of the kind of media political ecosystem um, that that we that we talk about um, painting things with with kind of broad brushstrokes. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So let's get it. Let's get into the, the Christine Lee case then. Um, it, it obviously shot to national attention when news dramatically broke uh, a few weeks ago that the Speaker of the House of Commons had warned MPs that there was a Chinese agent operating in Parliament. I was wondering if you could just provide a sort of brief anatomy of the case, who Christine Lee is um, and her links to, to United Front. Uh, sorry, I know there's, there's a lot to unpack in there. <laughs> yeah, there is indeed. No worries. Um, so, you know, Christine Lee's case is not as shocking as it might first appear. I think the only surprising element was the precise timing. Now, MI5 suggested there was new evidence that's come to light. I don't think they're typically pushed around by the party and government, so I'll go with that. Now, Lee has been making political donations into British politics since, well, before 2010. She's also done more than that. She was heavily involved in the establishment of the Chinese in Britain, APPG, that's the all-party parliamentary group. Those who maybe aren't aware, a small group of usually cross-party MPs that can discuss uh, issues, particular issues in isolation, uh, Chinese in Britain in this instance, but you know, you'll have like a nuclear energy to gambling to this and that, and uh, just various interest groups. That APPG meant further exposure to political actors in the UK. It also placed her and her organisation, that's the British Chinese Project, at the centre of a drive to increase registration of ethnically Chinese voters and to support next generation Chinese ethnicity leaders. Now, that's the British side. On the Chinese side, we see linkages to the embassy in the form of legal advisor role. We see membership of the CPPCC, that's the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference. Um, when we speak of the CPPCC and indeed the United Front, you know, I've mentioned this party to non-party element, and that's probably useful to hold in, in mind here. Lee was also selected as an honorary advisor to attend the Shenzhen Overseas Exchange Association Conference led by Shenzhen United Front Department, uh, the director of the Shenzhen United Front Department in India. And in, I think it was in 2019, she attended the, uh, will have been the ninth conference for friendship of overseas Chinese associations. That's a really interesting one. And uh, if you look at if you look at Chinese language media at the time, she said of that after that conference, after hearing the speech, um, I think the speech was from Yo Chuan, who's the actual the, uh, the top guy in the United Front at the time. Her response was, and I'll quote: "I must be a communicator of China's voice. Let the world understand China. Help the motherland develop. Safeguard the motherland's." unity, pledge to put my feelings for the motherland into action and do my humble part in realising the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. So those elements in, it, in themselves are problems. Then we consider the role inside UK Parliament. So we've got these really significant donations over half a million pounds, it's a lot of money. Uh, and indeed, the you've got those the, 
majority going to Barry Gardner MP. You have the Times then reporting that, and again, I'll quote, back a few years ago, they suggested that Gardner strongly opposed internal party criticism of Chinese involvement in the Hinkley Point project. So a really important part of the Labour's positioning as the official opposition at the time. There was also one single donation, if I'm not mistaken, to Ed Davey, who at the time was the ooh, uh, minister for, it would be for energy and climate change. Um, so you start to see that there are some problematic aspects there. You mentioned off the record before that you were a bit sort of surprised about the hysteria, if you like, surrounding the case. I was wondering, is that sort of because all all nation states are involved in these influence and interference activities? And, and you know, why did this cause the splash that it did? Was it something China specific or, or was it more that Lee is just the sort of tip of the iceberg in terms of party state, Chinese party state influence? And, and it's something that we need to be much more aware of on the, the UK side. Um, no, I think that I say I say it probably wasn't surprised because really, all of that, if you, especially if you read if you read Chinese, that was all there, really. In, in the open now, the that the quote I just made, the extended quote from her, I think that was uh, published in Chinese language media either late two thousand eighteen, early two thousand nineteen. But there was there was you could really have followed these linkages before then if you were looking. So, you know, considering I was talking to my it will be my PhD supervisor back what 2016-17, I presume the UK Security Service also was aware of that. And, and really, you know, it was also reported, there were linkages there reported in 2017 in British press. So given that was out there, that's that's the element I'm talking about there. I, I think it was already there, that just the timing and that burst and the uh, the alert and the nature of the uh, the issue, how it was raised, that's, that's the surprising element. You, you mentioned there, you know, is it just the tip of the iceberg in terms of uh, party state influence in the UK? Again, one should be careful discussing that topic first because you don't want to, you know, I don't want to generalize and damage the community, the British Chinese community I mentioned. So, and also, I suppose there, you know, there are legal aspects if you're going to call individuals out. I'll say this I strongly suspect there is a considerable amount of additional activity, you know, in Westminster, in the home countries, in regions, and in other sectors beyond politics. Uh, so yeah, there's there's going to be more probably to unpack here, but again, we're going to have to proceed with caution. And in terms of a response, then how can we improve our assessing of state private linkages and transparency around things like political funding and foreign interference? And I'm talking about legislation. So we've got this new counter state threat legislation that's set to be debated soon. Uh, and what would you like or, or envisage seeing be con being contained within this? And how, how perhaps could, could this sort of thing be structured? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I won't go into too granular detail. I'll tell you what, how it looks from this side. Yeah, so it is, it's, it's a difficult task. I mean, more transparency, more funding, more knowledge. I think, I'm, and forgive me, I'll go, I'm going to talk a little bit in sort of academic terms, but I think this is sort of missed. So I want to communicate the point, and that is, we are, when we look at this and we think about state private linkages and the likes, we are still stuck in Cold War thinking, but the world is now transnational in nature. I'd like to see legislation reflect this. So we have complex webs that cross national boundaries, be they supply chains, communications, finance, et cetera. 
if we are to be set in the transnational world as it is rather than the Cold War world as it was, we'll need to update those tools we have. Part of that will be greater capacity to excavate state-private linkages. Um, there are some signs this is happening incidentally. So when I was excavating these linkages in my own research, I used a lot of tools, some of which fall under the open source intelligence umbrella. Now, amongst those, I used um, some, a tool, an Orbis business database to link, basically it links business ownership records across borders. It isn't perfect, but it's useful. Now, I've noticed recently, we've now seen some government bodies using this, which is probably a good sign. And I think all in terms, again, of legislation, how we might move forward, this speaks to a very significant development. Uh, you know, so while there are elements of ideology and indeed Cold War-like espionage, I think we'll see battle lines coalesce around slightly different issues, um, accountability, transparency, uh, particularly in terms of linkages between commerce, authoritarian states, and UK policymakers. This is certainly something I've really had to focus on and drill down on in my own research. Oh, let, let me add one thing to that. Yeah, sure. uh, there was one prominent British voice on China yesterday compared uh, Gu Ailings, this is the um, Chinese snowboarder in the Winter Olympics, who I think was um, American-born and chose to represent China. Yeah, won the gold medal, right, yeah. <laughs> won the gold medal, indeed, yeah. Um, he mentioned that her decision to represent the US over China um, was comparable to defections of Soviet athletes to the West during the Cold War. I don't think that's useful. Now, I would say that, in fact, it speaks of the role of elite groups and their increasingly tenuous links to nationhood itself. That is the issue that you can look at there, and that would be a fascinating angler. That's the lens rather than the Cold War lens. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more on the, the, the framing. And in terms of what other countries have done around um, foreign interference, I know the US has a Foreign Agents Registration Act. What I would like to ask you from, from, from your research and um, things you've come across, are there any countries that you've observed as, as being particularly successful in countering foreign interference, either from, from China or elsewhere? I would honestly say you'd be better talking. There are experts who are in those specific countries who know the specific measures that have come in. In my own experience, you know, it's been very focused on the UK. It's been some on the US a little. And yeah, you know, you look around and you're obviously engaged with the debate in a wider sense. But I'm not, I wouldn't say I have the sufficient expertise. I would say this, though, from speaking to experts, as well as looking in, in a geographic sense, you can probably look in a historic sense. The reason I say that is um, it's an, you can make an interesting example there of looking at, say, uh, Lee Kuan Yew's engagement from Singapore in, at that time with China, especially when particularly you're looking at uh, engagement and doing things in particular that maybe the Chinese party state didn't like. Now, it's different dynamics, a different time, it's certainly a different power dynamic, the way China has developed. But, you know, you want to draw lessons from anywhere. And I, I, Speaking to other experts, that was something that I found quite interesting. In what we could learn and how we can go forward, there are probably two points. Let me say this. The question rests upon the premise of nationhood, and with good reason. But we must acknowledge that Though nationhood is an extremely useful concept, it doesn't possess the power it once did. So what I go to here is to talk about, like, you've got a German academic, uh, Eva Pils, and she talks of authoritarianism beyond the confines of nationhood. 
that's useful, I, I think. And I think it's useful here, not only in the British example. Um, something It's something I probably saw in my own research, but I've never really thought about it or conceptualized it in detail. So we could say that we have democratic actors who are complicit in authoritarian power. You know, are they transmitters of authoritarian power? They don't necessarily share the aims of the authoritarian state or autocratic state, but in maximizing shareholder value if they're a company or if they're an individual sitting on a board of an authoritarian state-backed company, they are effectively part of the machinery. Now, with all this in mind, my second point, what is the UK government's capacity to act? What can it learn from others? You're going to need clear red lines, clear legislation. You might disagree on the precise measures, but let's at least make things explicit so everyone knows what they can and cannot do. Uh, and that would hopefully take place in a landscape in which donations are recorded, in which the revolving door is better regulated. And all of those engaged in China, from politicians and civil servants to academics and CEOs, are more China literate. Uh, particularly in terms of the role of the party in that engagement, be it implicit or explicit. Yeah, I think it's been quite a comfortable position here to, to not be explicit around um, boundaries and transparency and looking at the, the, the context, or all, all this in the context of wider UK-China relations. Uh, and in a recent article for The Guardian, which you wrote, which I would recommend to all listeners and will include in the podcast notes, you used the term phony peace to, to describe this current state of, of UK-China relations. Could you elaborate a bit on this? What, what do you mean by this? Yeah, thank you for the recommendation. So for some of the reasons I've already alluded to today, I think, I think the Cold War is not a useful lens, right? I've said that. It's not a useful lens for the situation we are confronted with. I, the reason I favour phony peace is because, I, a number of reasons, I think it represents an opportunity to reframe what is going on. Cold War underplays that transnational element. Um, aforementioned companies with their own linkages to policymaking in liberal democracies and, and who directly, uh, sorry, who strongly favor good relations with authoritarian states, you know, where they depend on market access manufacturing. And they, I would say, generally view the world through financial metrics above all else. That's a really important element. Um, there are also far more interconnections between countries, meaning that Instead of what we see with the, goal, the Cold War, uh, I think the growing hostility manifests itself in different ways. To be a bit more explicit there, the Cold War is usually taken to mean hostility short of direct military conflict, but punctuated by proxy wars. The phony peace, I would say, is interconnected nations amid growing hostility. So in this environment, um, there are slightly different challenges, different hazards, different considerations, it's far more likely that liberal democracies will be interconnected to authoritarian states through myriad means, and perhaps even in areas of critical national infrastructure. To some extent, we are seeing that play out at present in terms of uh, Germany and Europe uh, in the debate around Nord Stream 2 and energy dependency on Russia. So this is why I think it's, it's, there's actually a very significant difference, and that's just a, a framing device to try and push us away from the Cold War, which I don't think is that useful in this case, and to push us toward, well, a, a phony piece is a state of uh, the actual nature of the relationship as it is at present, and hopefully toward more consideration of the transnational element. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating dichotomy at the moment um, uh, that's emerged over the, the last 
um, the, the last sort of few years in that we're now understanding how interconnected we are as a global actor and, and obviously China is a big part of that but but then there's been the, the pushback and um, with things like Huawei's involvement in, in UK 5G networks the erosion of liberal democracy in, in Hong Kong and wider coverage of the, the Xinjiang stuff and, and we're still in this sort of state of flux at the moment if I can mm -hmm. I can call it that Perhaps unfairly to, to ask you to do a little bit of, of crystal ball gazing. We've obviously talked uh, a lot about foreign interference today and, and some of the legislation that, that might come into play around that. What, what do you maybe see as the, the, the other major themes in bilateral relations between the UK and China uh, emerging, or perhaps they already exist, but, but over the short to, to medium term, what sort of things should we be, be looking out for? Well, I think it's going to depend it's going to depend on two things. Uh, one is, it, and I know it sounds uh, just you know an obvious point to make, but it depends on China. And what I mean here is, China is often given insufficient agency in this discussion. You know, what's the UK doing? What are we doing? That? Well, what's the US doing? That is absolutely vital. Um, and I think it's going to depend to some extent on the Punnett Square that's emerging in British politics. What I mean there is divisions within the left, divisions within the right. You have a a, a right wing which is still very much free marketeers engagement above all else you have a right wing which is focused uh, and i use right and left very loosely here a right wing which is focused on values on sovereignty security on the left i think you've got a human rights element there on the left but also on the uh, further left you have the uh, what are probably framed anti-us friends of China elements. Now, that's a really interesting political landscape, and this is going to be really crucial moving forward. Um, I'll also add, in the long run, it will depend on the next US presidential election, and not just in terms of the president's policy on China, but rather more in terms of how the US is perceived globally, because God, God knows who we're going to have uh, when that uh, election comes to pass. Like it or not, that will have a major impact on UK relations with China. Um, so emerging themes, I think there'll be a continued theme of dislocated engagement. So what we're going to see is some in business trying to cultivate better linkages, sometimes parroting what they're told by, say, party state elites, uh, business elites in China. But I think that at the same time, the party state will continue to act in ways that empower those in the UK who are concerned with sovereignty and security. I think the party state cannot act but that, that way. Um, uh, I think that there's that domestic focus from the party state in terms of its audience, and there's the clumsy manner it transfers the way it wields power domestically into the international environment. Yes, areas like climate change are important and do offer an opportunity of cooperation, but at the same time, I think you're going to see some elements, maybe the free marketeers, who will cynically employ that as an attempt to go for trade above all else. That's going to complicate matters. The result is going to be ebbs and flows in different sectors for some time to come, save a very significant unexpected event. I love that phrase, dislocated engagement. I'm going to steal that and, and use it from here on in. Um, but no, no, you're spot on. I think none of this really uh, exists in a vacuum and there's always going to be these domestic political tensions and other geopolitical factors, as, as you mentioned, with the, the US um, election coming up in a, in a couple of years' time and, and how the US decides it wants to engage with China, but, but also engage with the rest of the world. 
just before we, we finish, Martin, where is the best place to keep on top of what you're up to? Is it Twitter? I'm sure that everybody follows you by now, but, but just in case they don't. Oh, that's very kind. Yeah, uh, so on Twitter, I'm, I'm there at M-E Thorley. That's T-H-R-L-E-Y. That is probably going to be the best bet. I'll, uh, I'll always throw out any research I'm doing on there. So, uh, yeah, happy to... Uh, uh, DMs are always open as well. Always happy to hear from anyone. So, yeah, cheers. Thanks for that. Martin Thorley, thank you very much for, for taking the time to join us at the China Research Group today. Thank you kindly. <laughs>